if you can, now turn with me to uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers. So in your Bible, it's the, th- not the third, the fourth, wait. Yeah, the fourth book of the Bible. I should know this. I'm at the seminary. I promise. Um, Numbers chapter 21. All right. Numbers chapter 21. Uh, For this summer, we've been going through a sermon series called Great Stories, which are covering stories in the Old Testament, uh, the period before Jesus Christ came to earth, because going through these stories of Scripture are extremely powerful and real. Not only do we see how God works through the ups and downs of those in Scripture, but because in these stories, we can see our own stories too. We can see how in these stories of broken and lost people, that we are also broken and lost people. We can see how God has met people in their times of need or delivered people in the same way how He does that in our lives. And how God humbles people, comforts people, directs people, loves people, and so much more. And how God also does that in our stories as well. And the more we look carefully and dig into the hearts of these stories, God can teach us and show us about ourselves and more about Him. So today we're going to be in Numbers 21, verses, uh, I believe, verses four, uh, 4 through 9. Okay, let me just read it. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It reads... From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you so much for all that you are doing and for the continual blessing of your people through your word. Um, God, we do take a little tangent moment and want to pray for Adam and Joe and Gerald right now. Um, Even as we consider Father's Day today, we recognize that... um, yeah, that, that, that Adam is a new father of a, of a new child, but also how um, we as children of God are all adopted children of God um, and how you have brought us into your family to care and love and give us eternal life. And we are incredibly grateful. And so, Father God, I do pray that you would be with them, comfort them, be with the birth mother as she transitions in this period, and be with every single moment and place and space that you need for your, spirit, for your Spirit's presence to be um, with them, giving them peace, giving them um, even little Jonathan calmness and, and assurance, God. Um, God, we know that this is a celebration, but also it's a moment of a lot of transition, and so just be with them. In all of it, God. And God, we also do pray for your word as we go through Numbers 21, that you would guide us, that you would help us to see uh, more and more of who you are through this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Before I touch on the exact verses, let me just kind of remind us of what's going on in Numbers period, or just really actually the first um, narrative of Scripture. Now, this story is about the people of Israel. The people of Israel are God's chosen covenantal people, and they have just been freed from slavery in Egypt, which we see in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And then, you know, we see this through, the, through Moses, through the ten plagues, through God splitting an entire sea in two, and God bringing out of Egypt so that they can go to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place with peace and abundance and a place they can call their own. And to prepare them, the third book of the Bible is Leviticus, which is God giving them the law at Mount Sinai on how to be God's people in this new land. And then the book of Numbers, the book that we're in, the Israelites, they, in a little bit on, they send spies to this promised land to figure out, okay, can we take and conquer this land that God is giving to us? But if you know the story, they're scared, and they actually don't go into the land, and they actually say to God, we can't go, they're too big for us. Which is ironic, because God had just delivered them from the most powerful nation and army in Egypt, yet they are afraid that God can't take the Canaanites, and give them the promised land. So this doesn't bode well for them because in this process, they would disobey and they would grumble as God would, make, God would delay their entrance to the promised land for 40 years. They would wander the wilderness, the desert land, grumbling and rebelling against God for 40 years. And we're kind of at the tail end of the 40 years, and this is where this story in Numbers chapter 21 happens. You know, as I thought about this passage, um, this kind of idea came up. Now, how, how many of you have heard of this term hangry before? Hangry, all right? Hangry is hungry plus angry equals hangry. It's like that old Snickers commercial. I don't know if you remember. When you are really hungry, you like turn into somebody really annoying or, or you're really irritated or you get, lose your patience or you complain all the time or nothing seems to go right in your day. Well, at first, this word came out, and it was just kind of a trending hashtag, okay? But in 2018, hangry has officially been added to the Oxford English Dictionary. The definition is bad-tempered or irritable as a result of hunger. Why? Because there's actually now been research that shows that, I mean, I don't think you need research, but they've been doing research that food and emotional well-being are intrinsically intertwined and connected. Research shows that hunger affects your glucose level, which can affect different hormonal changes in your body and your brain. Research also shows that there are certain neurons that are released when you're hungry, and it's tied to our emotions. And they call them hangry neurons. I, I looked this up. I believe it's real. I, we have some doctors and people in medicine here, so uh, I, you can see if it's right or not. But it's a concept that's real. But the question is, how many of us actually get hangry. I think all of us do. All of us in some way get hangry. We get easily irritable or we complain or upset when things aren't really going our way and we don't get our bellies filled. But if we even broaden the scope out a little bit more, whether it's our empty stomachs or our well-planned out calendars or our life circumstances, when we don't get what we want, we often get discouraged we often complain, we often get frustrated, and even angry. Our circumstances dictate our emotions. 
And if you are impatient, we complain. You know, we are complaining type of people. We complain about our coworker who talks too much or who doesn't do their, or doesn't do their job. We complain about the commute to work or the Chicago traffic. We complain about the rising food costs, the poor dating market, or our delayed package from Amazon. We complain about a lot of different things. What have you complained about this past week? What have you complained about this morning? As we look at our story, it's obvious that the Israelites were complainers. But instead of just looking at this story and abstract it from us, I want us to see this story and put ourselves in their shoes or their sandals for a little bit. Let's not judge them or think they're foolish here because honestly, if we're in their shoes, we would be complaining too. It's no different than today. So today, I want to walk through this story answering three questions. And the three questions are, why do we complain? What happens if we complain? And what must we do instead? So let's go. Number one, why do we complain? And I think there are three reasons why the Israelites complain here and also why we complain in our life. And the first reason is that we complain because our fears are bigger than our faith. In verse 4, we see uh, the context here. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now look at this map with me for a second. Uh, It's kind of hard to read, but they are at that red star, which is Mount Hor, and they are needing to go to the promised land, which is all the way up north. Now there's a land in the middle called Edom, and the direct route should have been through that land, which would also have been the path of water and, um, you know, fresh, like just vegetation around there. But they choose to go around. And if you notice to the right what that word is, It's the eastern desert. So they choose to go the indirect route, a longer way, with endless amounts of sand and heat and no water. Why would they go this way? Because they were afraid. They did not want to face their fears of facing the land of Edom and eventually Moab because they were afraid that those nations or those people would conquer them. So they went around the other way. And as a result, because they chose the longer way, verse 4, the end says, and the people became impatient on the way. That word impatient is kind of a weak translation in the original language, which is Hebrew. Um, It's actually two words. The first word is the verb to make short. Often it's translated as cutting down, like cutting down grain for the harvest. And the second word is a noun, which is my soul, or a deeper word translation would be the inner deepest desires and emotions that I have. And so if you put that together in the full kind of breadth of the word, it means that my deepest desires and emotions have been cut down. That's how the Israelites were feeling. They had nothing left. So the Israelites weren't just impatient or complaining because they were hangry. They were openly and expressively impatient frustrated and enraged at the path and the difficulty of the path that they were taking. But it's ironic again because they had no one to blame but themselves. They chose this long and treacherous path. They chose to reject God's ways. And I believe for us a similar reality for us is that we often complain because our fears are bigger than our faith too. 
Sometimes we choose the long and harder way of life. We trust in our own knowledge, or our own strategy, or our own paths because we fear failing in the world's way of life. We fear the shame of not doing enough or accomplishing enough, or we fear not being in control, not having the right paycheck or the right reputation or family. But the more that you try to walk your own path, you realize that it's impossible to live up to those expectations. So what happens? You complain on that path when things don't go your way. You complain because our fears have led us to a longer desert path and life gets frustrating along the way. Instead of having faith and trusting on the path that God has set for us. Another reason we complain, the second one, is because our entitlement leads us to believe that we deserve more, a little bit more. If you go to verse 5, look in your text, the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And again, I think the English translation doesn't do justice to what the Israelites are truly saying. When the people spoke against God and Moses, who was the leader and God's spokesman, they are potentially or possibly yelling their complaints directly at Moses and God. They are accusing them of why or have you brought us out of Egypt? We were slaves, but at least we had food and water. And, and basically accusing God's character and plans. It's essentially a mutiny. Why are they doing this? Because for them, they thought they knew best. They thought they knew better than what God knew. So they believed that God should have given them what they wanted, when they wanted, and how they wanted it. Like a genie or a vending machine or your Amazon checkout box, they believed God wasn't holding up to his deal. They followed God to this desert, hoping for the promised land, and when it took too long, they questioned God and rebelled. Church, when was the last time you complained because you believed you were more entitled to what God has already given you? Questioning God's decisions or plans for your life, complaining when someone else gets what you wanted, or questioning God for not being fair. We often complain because our entitlement is rooted in our self-centeredness. We take God off his throne, and then we place our wants and our desires in his place, always wanting more. And if we always want more and we don't get it, we're going to complain. Now, another reason we complain, we see it again in the Israelites, the third one, is because our joy and gratitude for God's gifts have become dull, have become dull. In verse 5, it finishes off. They say to God and Moses, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now the irony is that they had food and water. Since the beginning of this wilderness journey in the book of Exodus, we see that God had miraculously provided manna, which is heavenly bread, and quail, which is meat, to feed them. And then two chapters ago, just in Numbers, we see that God destroyed a broken desert rock to give them water. But this wasn't enough for the Israelites. Because by now, you have to picture this, by now they've been in the wilderness and they've been eating manna and drinking water out of a rock for about 30 years. And so after a while, 
After some time, that joy and that gratitude they had of when God first provided manna has slowly disappeared and turned instead into apathy and even disgust. When, when they called God's miraculous provisions that came literally from the sky, when they said it was worthless and miserable and they even said that they loathed it and they were sick of it and hated it, just imagine how God would feel. Imagine how much they, their complaint turned into almost just entire anger and frustration. But it's similar to us. If we look at our own lives, how many of us have gotten bored of God's good gifts? How many of us are like my kids when they get a brand new toy? When the first day, they're so ecstatic. They're so happy they got this toy. They want to even like sleep with the toy. But then a few days go by and the toy just sits in the toy bin collecting dust along with all the other toys. How often do we do that with God's good gifts to us? Once that gift loses its flavor, we demand for that next and exciting shiny gift. But then when it doesn't come, so often we turn into that child pouting or screaming in the middle of Target. We complain because our joy and gratitude is placed in God's gifts more than in God himself. And gifts, no matter how long we have them, will always become dull. They will always become boring and they will always become maybe even a little worthless to us. But a relationship with God doesn't. So let me ask you, why do you complain? Why do you complain? Is it because your fears are bigger than your faith? Is it because you are a little entitled and believe that you deserve more than you currently have? Is it because you are becoming bored of God's gifts and losing your relationship with the giver of those gifts? Now before I move on to the next question here, I want to clarify something, that there is a difference between complaining to God versus complaining about God. There are times in our life where we will complain to God by sharing our hardships and pains vulnerably, but also doing it in a way where we're trusting God and believing that he'll act and answer our prayers in his time and way. And this is actually appropriate. In Psalm 142, we read, David writes, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So in a way, complaining to God is appropriate. The Heavenly Father, he, our Heavenly Father, He loves it. He wants us to do that. So not all complaining is wrong. But for the Israelites, and, but, and sometimes for us, what happens is that we're not complaining to God. We are complaining about God. We are questioning his plans, questioning his provisions, questioning his purposes and ways. We are blaming him and even accusing him of our failures and our pains, and we are losing faith in who he is. What does that do to our relationship with him? Well, this reminded me a little bit about being a father myself. So I'm, you know, I'm not a heavenly father. I'm the earthly father of three boys. If I haven't, if you don't know, I'm a, a father of a four-and-a-half-year-old Matthias, a three-year-old Josiah, and a 10-month-old Ezra. Yes, three boys. Uh, they make my life exciting, unpredictable, and enjoyable. But can I just make one um, Father's Day confession today? You can't judge me, okay? It's Father's Day. You can't judge me. My least favorite moment of being a dad is dinner time. 
Okay? It's dinner time. Why? Because after, enjoy, after cooking a meal, and I, I actually like to cook dinner often, uh, making sure this food is healthy, that it's balanced, that it tastes good, and it's a way to show and love my family and my kids. Do you know what the most common response I get at the dinner table from my boys? Some quotes here. I don't want to sit here. I want to sit by mom. I want to sit on the adult chair. Or, no, I don't want milk. I don't want water. Give me juice to drink. Or, I don't want to eat this. Can I have mac and cheese instead, which is like one of the only food groups for toddlers? Or they say, I'm done, which I look at their plate and there's like nothing has been touched. Or they just eat all the rice and all the vegetable and meat are still left. Or the worst part about dinner sometimes is when they simply just refuse to eat. Then are they play with their food and they're avoiding it? Or my second, Josiah, he likes to do this thing where he like fake gags. He's like, and he's not choking on food. It's because the food tastes so bad for him that he's gagging. Like that's what he does during dinner time. I swear, it's kind of like a flea market. There's like bargaining, there's like arguments, there's chaos. Everything going everywhere, okay? That's dinner time. Now I know they're kids. I'm not trying to like say they're terrible kids. They're, they're just kids. And I probably should be uh, a lot more patient and kind like good fathers are. But it's hard not to take it personally sometimes. Because when they reject the food, the food that I made, I feel like they aren't just rejecting the food itself, but sometimes I feel like they're rejecting me. And as a father, that hurts. And I know that they're, you know, they're probably, they're too young. They're not really doing that. Um, but as a father, you, you feel that. And if they, but if they really did do that, just, I mean, that would be very devastating and painful for me. If that's how I feel, how does God feel when his children reject him repeatedly? How does God feel when his children reject the gifts that he gives to him? I can't imagine just how patient God is and how loving he is to love and graciously give us good things for generations and generations and generations of complaining children. So this leads me to my second question. What happens if we continue to complain? If we aren't careful, like the Israelites, we won't just be complaining about our circumstances, but we'll begin to slowly reject God himself. We will begin to reject his plans, his purposes, his provisions. Maybe not all at once, but if our complaining grows and grows, it will lead to our eventual rebellion. It will lead to sin. And this is what happens to the Israelites. If we look at, you know, Numbers 21, verses 6, God sends fiery, or another translation, is venomous serpents to bite and to kill many of them. Now, I know this really sounds extreme for a story, but you must remember that the Israelites have grumbled and complained and accused God many, many times through the wilderness. And every time they did so, they were breaking their covenant that they made with God, resulting in God having every right to punish them for their sin. Now, for us, we don't live under that covenant. We, under, we live under a new covenant. Only Israel lived in that covenant. Our sufferings are not because we've complained. They're not because we messed up, but they're because of our brokenness and sin that's in us and around us in our world. I promise that God won't send fiery serpents to us because we complain. That's not the point of the story. But this story stands as a warning to us. 
it stands as a warning because even a few months ago, when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul even mentioned this story in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. Paul writes, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. When our hearts foster a complaining attitude, over time it will begin to develop a heart that tests and bargains with God and demands from God. And over time, we begin to not look at God as our Heavenly Father who is generous, kind, and loving and who knows what's best for us, but that relationship begins to drift farther and further apart. Complaining distances our heart further and further from our Heavenly Father. And if we don't stop, we'll start treating God like an absent father, like a father who just disciplines and judges us, like a father who just is a vending machine that gives us what we want, or like a father who doesn't love us, or some other broken picture of what a father should be. But that's not what God wants. That's not who God is. He wants an intimate trusting, abiding, and loving relationship with you as his children. That's what he wanted for the Israelites. That's what he wants for us. And the reason why he punishes them is so that they see how far they are drifting away from their father. And he wants them desperately to come back. Which leads me to my third question. What must we do instead? It's these three three words, three verbs. It's to repent, to look, and to believe. To repent, to look, and to believe. In the conclusion of the story here, the Israelites, they immediately repent and confess of their sins. If we look at their text, they, they know that their rebellion and complaining about God, they speak, are, are speaking against them, and they know that the reason why they're being punished is because of their sins. So they immediately ask Moses to pray for them, knowing that Moses is probably the only one who has a relationship with God to even intercede on their behalf for their healing. And so then in verse 8 and 9, we see God commands Moses to create this bronze serpent, kind of weird, but here, listen on, and set it on a pole in that whoever is bitten, they look at it, and if they look at it, they shall live. Now, when the text says to look, that word look, it's not just simply looking like when you do when you're like scrolling through your news feed or when you're like looking at an accident when you're driving by. It's not just like glancing at something. It means to look with belief and understanding, to look with belief and understanding. It's as if you're looking at something with such desperation and hope that by looking at it is the only way that you will live. And the story kind of ends with a cliffhanger because we don't know how many people died. We don't know how many people lived by looking at the bronze serpent or we don't know how long this lasted. All we see in verse 10 is that they continue on in their journey in the wilderness. But the next time we hear about this story is actually when Jesus references it in John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 3, but I have it also on the screen behind me. We read it when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says this in John chapter 3, verses 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here, Jesus, God incarnated in the flesh, is pointing to his eventual crucifixion on the cross. Here, he's 
pointing towards a time where he will one day be beaten, bloodied, and his body would be lifted up on display for everyone to see. Where on that cross, Jesus Christ would die for no sin or fault of his own, but because of the very sins that have plagued humanity since the garden, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, he would die in our place. Because just like the Israelites who were near death because of their sins against God, we too as humanity still right now have the venom of sin running through our veins. Each of us have complained against God. Each of us have rebelled against God in our ways, in his ways. Each of us have rejected him and demanded that we get what we want. Each of us have lost faith in him and tried to go our own way. So because of our sin, our rebellion, we deserve the same punishment the Israelites did on that day. But there is good news, and Jesus is the one to deliver it. That if we repent like the Israelites did, we confess that we have sinned and simply look, not to a bronze serpent, but to the cross and believe Jesus in his saving work, we will not experience eternal death, but we will experience eternal life. Pay attention to this part here. Jesus was lifted up and died in the same flesh that we have on. And he died on a symbol of execution in that time, a symbol of a cross. So just like the bronze serpent, serpent, which was the very symbol of the way the Israelites were dying, the cross is also a reminder for us that death was supposed to be our destination too, that that cross was supposed to be our way to die. So every time we look at the cross today, we look at Jesus. We remember that our Savior, our God, took our place. It doesn't mean that suffering will end now. Remember, when we look at the story here, God says that Israelites would only live, not be healed and relieved immediately. Suffering, sadly and honestly, will continue in our lifetime until Jesus returns again. But for us, when we look at the cross, which represents, represents hope, new life, freedom, and a relationship with God our Father, that's, that's what the cross represents. And we have that if we look and believe in Him. So instead of a complaining heart, a frustrated heart, or even a rebellious heart, we can't help but to have a heart full of humility and gratitude every time we look at that cross because it means that we have new life we have hope that we have been saved from dead and the only words that should come out of our mouths every time we look at that cross is thank you it's jesus thank you father thank you for sending your son and what's so amazing about this story even a story before christ came and the entire story of scripture is that we are here with new life and eternal life only because of his grace. Only because of his grace. It's not something that we earned or deserved or bought. It was generously given to us. We only need to look and believe. This is the gospel story. This is the greatest and most beautiful story in our world. It's the story why we gather here. It's the story of why we even started this church plant two years ago. It's the story that we want to share with our family, with our friends, with anyone else who is around us. It's a story that we believe that God has given to us because God loves us 
and because God is in the business of turning complainers into worshipers. The story of Scripture is that many of us are complainers, but that God, through his amazing story, can turn us into worshipers. And it's amazing, too, that in this account of when Jesus tells of, this, uh, of the bronze serpent and Moses, what are the next words that Jesus says in John 3? It's John three sixteen and 17. And it's a verse that many of us maybe have heard before. And it's, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let me just conclude with this story. In 2014, uh, there was a Korean movie titled, uh, the English title is actually Old to My Father. Um, Some of you may have watched it. I watched it a long time ago. Um, It's the story about a man and his family during the Hangnam uh, evacuation, which is during the Korean War, where thousands of refugees from the northern part of Korea were trying to flee from the war, and they were transported by U.S. Navy boats to the southern part of Korea away from the war as refugees. And this movie, it follows this young boy uh, losing his father and sister at that evacuation. And so as the eldest, this, this story follows him becoming the breadwinner at a very young age for his mother and siblings. Um, and it's a story of perseverance and grit. A lot of difficulty went on because he had to, as the only person to be able to make means uh, for the family, he had to you know, at one point go to Germany for temporary migrant work. He eventually got married. He had children. He tried to run this um, small import goods store. Uh, later on, he's deployed in the Vietnam War where he gets injured. And then even in this part of this movie, there's an account where he is able to meet and reunite with this long, long, sister who was um, uh, actually adopted into a U.S. family and he gets to meet her. And so there's a lot of emotions, a lot of struggle in this story. And towards the end of the movie, there's a really powerful scene that (laughs) still gives me the chills today where uh, he is pictured in this one room and the camera kind of sees two rooms at once. He is pictured in one room and the entire other family, he's a grandfather by now, his family, his grandchildren, they're all in the other room. And his family, they're laughing, they're playing with the grandchildren, they're having a, a great time. But then in the other room, it's a, it's a part of the story where he's weeping by himself. And he's weeping because he's remembering his father that he lost during that evacuation. And he says, um, in Korean, uh, in Korean, it's abuji namu pigoneo, which basically means, Father, it's been so tiring. Father, it's been so tiring to live. And in that scene, it's so emotional because you see this tough grandfather now who perseveres through such pain, such loss, such uncertainty, never showing any emotions to his family because he wanted the family to prosper and to you know, have a great life. But when he's on his own, he just breaks down because he knows just how difficult and tiring his life was. And it's this contrast of weeping and laughing, which is so powerful because it's often a picture of many, many immigrant stories throughout our world. That the happiness, happiness of the grandchildren was the result of the suffering of their grandfather. 
And for me, this is uh, incredibly heart-wrenching for me because this is also a story that relates with me because I'm also a child of Korean immigrants. My grandparents actually were similar in that evacuation. They were part of that um, evacuation. They, they fled during the war. Uh, my aunts and uncles can recall times where they experienced incredible poverty and um, lack of food. Uh, they even, you know, for them, their story was different because they took their lives to the U.S. and they suffered here. And eventually, through the, the grit and the perseverance, they were able to provide for the next generation, which was my generation, and even for my kids' generation. And when I look to them, my grandparents, or that generation of Koreans that suffered mightily, nearly every complaint, every tiny complaint I have, every inconvenience I had, everything that could bother me in my life now disappears. It fades in comparison to what they experienced. Mine don't, it, it does not compare at all. Instead, the only thing that happens when I look to their story is immense tears of gratitude. Perhaps some of you can relate to this. Perhaps some of you had had previous generations, whether in America or someplace else, of generations sacrificing so much for you. And once you look back at them, you can't help but cry with so much gratitude. And in the same way, church, actually in a greater way, when we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus and what he has done, all that he has done for us, how he has saved us from sin and from death and eternal suffering by laying down his life voluntarily for us, how much more grateful should we be or can we be? Let's, let that be our task during this week. That instead of looking at the small things of our lives and the uncertainty of our lives where we complain or get frustrated or get hangry, let's look to the cross. Let's look to even if previous generations before us and remember and remind ourselves that Jesus, when we look to Jesus, we look to him so that our complaints can turn into thanksgiving and worship. Let me pray. Father, we are humbled um, by this. Even for me, God, when uh, I was working on this and even just thinking about uh, that movie and the story of my uh, grandparents and previous generations, I'm incredibly um, humbled and uh, just, yeah, I'm incredibly ungrateful. Uh, And so, God, I pray that you would forgive us of our complaints and our lack of gratitude. Um, Because we know that when we look to that cross, uh, our gratitude and our worship should be so much greater than it is. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we're at right now, wherever our hearts are at, God, that you would convict us, that you would remind us, and that you would help us to look to you and fill our hearts with immense gratitude that is beyond comprehension. Fill our hearts with such joy and thanksgiving and worship to our King who is worthy of it all who gave us life, who gave us abundant life and joy, so much joy. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.